There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, Episode 75. In this episode, I thought we'll discuss the concept of risk and try and marry it to the topic of personal finance. And I will also discuss strategies to analyze financial risk. For those of you that are new to the channel, the aim here is to educate, empower, and entertain. Now, just a little disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions after you listen to this podcast episode or channel that you want to make and take it to your appropriate financial advisors. Now, if you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to investing, saving, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one, pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money. That is the money that you pay yourself. Step two, Invest that money, ideally something that you understand in or want to understand in. For me, I just invest in index funds. It's easy, simple, cheap, and effective. Step three, reinvest dividends. Remember, the power of compounding is very real. Step four, do it for the long term. I'm not talking five, 10, or 15 years. I'm talking 20, 30, or 40 years even. And step five, automate the investment forever. Make sure that you automate the processes so that you're less likely to make changes, you're more likely to adhere to them, and you're less likely to forget or make errors. If you did these simple five steps and you started early, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life better, but also most importantly, make the lives of people around you better. In this episode, the main topic is going to be risk as it relates to finances. So let's get going. What is risk? What is financial risk? In financial terms, it's expressed as the chance that an investment's actual outcome or return will defer its expected outcome or return. And part of that includes losing all of your investment in full. So the point of any investment is to get the maximum gain for an expected level of risk. The other point of an investment is if we can understand the basics of risk, we can analyze risks and therefore we can manage risks particularly when it comes to investing. Now, risk is unavoidable in everyday life. There is an element of risk in everyone's daily life. For example, driving a car is technically risky, as is walking down the street. Likely, there is risk associated with any financial decision or investment we make in our personal finances. So risk is really unavoidable, but you can take steps to mitigate or reduce the risk to as minimum as you possibly can. So, which means you need to come up with a strategy to analyze your risk profile. 
So what is a risk profile? For those that contact me with their questions, I often use the term risk profile. It's important for you to know what your risk profile is, and it's essentially your willingness to take on risks. If you can work out your risk profile, then you can use that and work out your asset allocation for your portfolio. This is what your financial advisor or planner may be involved with. They ask specific questions to create a specific and personalized risk profile. Risk profiles are also for corporations, so they're not just something that you use for individuals. So big companies, businesses, or any small business can use a risk profile analysis to work out how much risk they have, how much risk they're willing to take for their corporation or for their business. Now, if you haven't listened to my podcast about loss aversion, this is the right time to listen to it after this podcast episode, of course. It's episode 43, where I talk about how some people feel the pain of losses more than the joys of wins. And that's kind of like talking about risk and how you can avoid losses as much as you possibly can. Now, part of the risk profile is also to understand the person's willingness to forego wins. So you need to understand that risk is all about, I mean, not all about losing returns. It's also about understanding how much wins that you're happy to forego. Now, if you're not happy to forego wins, but you want to avoid all of the risk, then it's just not technically possible. For every action financially that you take, there is an associated risk associated with it, and there is also an associated loss uh, uh, of a potential gain associated with it. So let's use an example. Bill is a 26-year-old IT engineer, recently graduated. He's gotten a great job. Bill does not have a partner, nor does he have any children. Bill only has a help debt worth about 25000 so Bill is happy to take more risk because one, he has a stable income and a job, two, his parents are supportive, three, he has no dependents, and four, his only debt doesn't have interest and only changes with inflation. Bill understands volatility, so he's happy to accept large swings in the valuation of his investments, and he is willing to take higher risk for higher return. Bill is classified officially now as a risk seeker. Now, you will notice when you log into your super, for example, there are various pre-made portfolios called high growth, growth, balanced and conservative. It depends on your super, of course, but this is the general gist of it. And essentially, they are predetermined for people who have various levels of risk. They are the people that accept low level versus very high level of risk. High growth is possibly what Bill might be interested in to invest uh, when it comes to his super, because he is, you know, 40 years until he retires. He's in his 20s. He's only 26. So there's plenty of time to make up for any losses. Let's change the story a little bit. Suppose we have Barry. Barry is a 49-year-old IT engineer. He also has a stable income. He does have a partner who doesn't work. He has two children going through high school. He has a mortgage at $500,000. He does have a super worth about $500,000 as well. And overall, he's concerned about his liabilities in relation to his income. So debt to income ratio for Barry is too high. So Barry is not happy to take on much risk when it comes to investing. He cannot sustain huge losses if things go pear-shaped. So Barry is considered to be more risk averse. So 
What affects a person's ability to take on risk or not to take on risk? There are multiple things that affects a person or a corporation even to take on more risk versus to take on less risk. And here they are. Age. What is the time horizon of their investment life? How long before they retire? Income. Stability of the career. The number of dependents. The assets they've already had. The security of the job. The ability to get a raise. The lifestyle choices they make. The personality traits of that individual. We talked about assets and whether they're paid it off or still have liabilities associated with it. Is there any alternative streams of income? Is there income diversification? We talked about liabilities just before. And also, lastly, investment goals. So there's multiple factors to consider to come up with your risk profile, so to speak. So does risk-taking ability diminish with age? In other words, for Barry, as he gets older, is he going to have more likely to take more risk or less likely to take more risk? Now, that all depends on the individual circumstance. So to answer the question, does risk-taking ability diminish with age, the answer is no. In Barry's example, if his children graduate from year 12 or university, now he doesn't have to worry about school fees or paying for their education, or if he has a lot of personal protection insurance like life insurance, income protection, his risk profile may change. So he may be willing to take on more risk than usual once he doesn't have any dependents needing his support or once his liabilities is reduced. So the ability to take on more risk does not always diminish with age. But generally speaking, it's a pretty good mantra to have. The risk profile, therefore, of an individual can change throughout their life depending on the stages of their life and many other factors. Just because someone has high net worth and low liabilities doesn't mean they're willing to take financial risk. Therefore, it comes down to their personality and personal preference. So what's the point of all this? What's the point of having a risk profile? Well, it's all about asset allocation. It's about determining where your money goes. With your money, where will you be comfortable for that money to sit at? Is it only on shares? Is it only in bonds? Is it in property, whether it be real estate, residential, or commercial real estate? Or do you find it very, very risky to have money anywhere apart from locked in a safe? Or worse yet, buried underground, which is not a great idea because, you know, the money can disintegrate potentially, although with Australia's plastic notes, unlikely. So corporations also undergo the same sort of process when it comes to risk profiling. And we'll get into more detail soon, but essentially this is why some corporations engage with private auditors to come and have a look at their financial health to ensure their risks are minimised and losses are mitigated to the best of their ability. Ultimately, if a corporation does not regularly assess their risk profile and minimise their risks, then they will lose money, which means shareholders won't be happy, which in turn is a cycle of more losses. So is there a company around the world that affixes risk ratings for particular investments like index funds or ETFs or company shares or bonds, etc.? And the answer is yes. Morningstar is one of the premier ratings agencies for risk ratings that assesses investing assets risk and provides an objective rating. So when it comes to financial risk, hopefully that sort of summarizes what it is, what a risk profile is, and how to go about developing a risk profile.
But there are two main types of financial risks in broad terms. So let's go into that a little bit more detail. The first one is called systematic risk. This is the same as market risks. This type of risk can affect entire markets or large sections of the market. Pandemics fall into this category. The COVID-19 crisis has affected entire countries' economies and hasn't spared any sector. Now, you can't completely eradicate this risk and it's very difficult to mitigate. As I always say to people, I didn't wake up the 1st of January 2020 thinking there's going to be a global pandemic and there's going to be a 30% market crash. Now, despite diversification, I've still lost 20 to 30% in the value of the index funds, although in recent times it has come back a bit. So we'll go into specific systematic risks later in the podcast. The second type of financial risk in broad terms is unsystematic risk. This is when risk only affects a specific section of the economy or a specific company. This is largely industry specific. For example, again using COVID-19 as an example, due to the travel bans, the travel industry is an example of an unsystematic risk. This could be due to the pandemic, due to terrorism, etc. Other examples um, involve changing in management products being faulty or recalled. Remember the Takata airbag disaster or the Volkswagen emissions scandal, for example. These are all unsystematic risks affecting specific companies. Unsystematic risks can also be due to regulatory changes or a new competitor who's wanting to crush the competition and take away market share. Today I was speaking to a colleague and I was talking about TomTom. TomTom was a great brand, had a great navigation system, back in the early 2000s. But guess what changed? In 2007, the iPhone came, they put Google Maps onto it, and TomTom essentially vanished into thin air. That is unsystematic risk. Now, there is a way to mitigate this risk, and that is to diversify. So if one company goes bankrupt, and you have other companies would survive, this is diversification, and this is basically the principal advantage of investing in index funds. That's from an investor's point of view. But if you're a corporation that only makes one product, you've got significant unsystematic risk. Any competitor could copy or just change a little bit of that product to just make it a little bit better, and therefore your market share has just evaporated overnight, as did happen to TomTom. Now, both systematic and unsystematic risks go hand in hand, and often one can lead to another and vice versa. So there are specific risk types And we should discuss that in detail. And this is not an exhaustive list, but we'll go through that one by one. Okay. Business risk. Basically, this just means the basic viability of the business. The financial risk is to do with the cost of financing, but the business risk is to do with all the other expenses a business must cover to remain operational and functional. COVID is a particularly strenuous time for some businesses. Sales losses means it's very difficult to keep to pay wages. This is a business risk. Credit risk. This is when borrowers are not able to pay their debt obligations. Interest payments get late. Principal payments are not paid. So when it comes to credit risk, for example, a corporate bond is more risky than a government bond. That is, if you lent your money to the government, you're far more likely to get the money back, along with your coupon payments during the lifetime of the bond. Standard & Poor's, Fitch, Moody's, they're all ratings agencies that give ratings to bonds and other types of investments as well. Country risk. This is when a country defaults on its obligations. 
This risk applies to investors wanting to invest overseas. For example, if you want to invest in emerging economies, you may find return is potentially higher, but along comes with it risks. Hence, the term risk return trade-off. So, a lot of people ask me, why don't invest overseas? It's comfort factor. I feel that investing overseas potentially involves country risk. I don't live overseas. I don't feel comfortable investing overseas. I don't invest overseas for the same reason I don't buy property overseas. So I'm more familiar with the Australian environment, and that's why I only invest in Australia. Now, that in itself is a country risk, potentially, because if Australia goes bankrupt, I hope it doesn't, but if Australia goes bankrupt, I'm in deep trouble, and that's a risk that I've taken. Currency risk is another one. For example, if you live in Australia and invest in overseas markets, you're prone to currency risk. The AUD, for example, is weakened now than it was five years ago, so you'll need to pay more for the same investment today than you did five years ago. This is where currency hedging investments come into play. Now, I have talked about hedging, um, speculation, and short selling in episode 72, so if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it. Um, and you know, likewise, at the moment, for example, if you live in the United States, their dollar is significantly stronger, so it makes sense to invest in Australia uh, at the moment because for them, things in Australia appear cheaper. Interest rate risk. Now, this is something we take for granted. Having a variable mortgage rate makes this risk real. Although interest rates have traditionally lowered over time, if the rate spikes up again, homeowners may be in for a shock in terms of their affordability, serviceability of their home loan. Now, here's a bit of a tip that I always tell people. I tell people, do not commit to a mortgage that's going to take away more than 30% of your after-tax income. That's one way to look at it. And if you're ultra-conservative, I would factor in a 2% um, interest rate rise in the next sort of you know five years or so, which is really really possible. So I never borrow money to invest. Um, you know that's something that I just don't like. I just don't like debt. But if you had to borrow money to buy a home, don't borrow the full amount the um, bank gives you because they'll just give you as much as you can afford. Try and use those basic principles to try not to borrow too much. Um, So always borrow less than what you can afford and factor in interest rate rises as well because interest rate risk can really burn a lot of people. Liquidity risk. Now, liquidity risk just means how quickly can you sell off your assets to create cash. For example, if all of your investments are in cash, then it's easy. Uh, If there is uh, investments in shares, then it's relatively easy to get rid of. Uh, If you only own property, you're pretty much stuffed, particularly if you have a significant economic crisis because it's relatively illiquid um, as it takes some time to sell it and convert it into cash. Share portfolios can be particularly sold um, partially, so you don't have to sell the entire share portfolio, whereas property can't be partially sold. So you can't just fundraise by selling off your garage of your home, for example, and keeping the rest of the home. Although there is a company called BrickX that tends to do something very, very similar. They, they, they sort of, they believe that properties can be bought and sold in brick by brick format. But, you know, traditional investing, you can't really sell off a room in your house, for example. So although bricks, uh, bricks and mortar um, is a great investment, and don't get me wrong, it is a form of liquidity risk. So is there a simple strategy 
to minimise risks? Well, there is. The simple strategy to minimise risks is diversification when it comes to income, but also when it comes to investments. Having multiple jobs, night or day jobs or weekend jobs, will allow for income to keep coming in even if one of the jobs doesn't work out well. I know a lot of people that have just one job. I know a lot of people that have multiple jobs. So they might have a job that they do on Friday night and on the weekends they have a weekend gig, whether that be you know, um, singing or dancing or whatever that they do or concerts. Um, it's a side gig. And, you know, during times of COVID, when gatherings are banned, that gig takes a huge hit, but your steady income still comes in with other sources of income that you might have during weekdays. So I think having multiple jobs um, is income diversification, and I think income diversification reduces your risk. Now, to minimise risk in terms of investment, um, you obviously don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So hence why withholding a good mix of shares, property, bonds, or cash is likely the way to go. So here are some basic diversification tips. And I have spoken about diversification before, but here it is. Buy an index fund or an ETF that hold a bunch of securities packaged into one. So if you buy the ASX uh, 200 ETF, you're investing in the Australian economy. If you're buying the ASX 300 Vanguard, you're investing in the Australian economy. It's easy. When buying index funds, don't just buy in one sector. For example, if you just bought an index fund comprising of oil stocks, you would have been screwed big time given the lack of demand for oil, particularly in the last three months. So make sure you spread it out amongst the sectors. For me, I'll just buy the ASX 300 via Vanguard. It's simple. It's easy and in my view, very, very effective. Remember to rebalance your portfolio. So you may find as the market rises, you own way too much in index funds and not much in cash or property or bonds. So make sure as part of assessing your financial security and health every year, refer to episode 73, you look at rebalancing your portfolio. And rebalancing shouldn't take that long. You really should be doing it once a year. So now that we've identified the risks, now that we've tried to mitigate the risks by having some strategies to minimise the risks, how do we analyse it? Um, and who does this analysis? So risk analysis is a specialised field and it usually is done by experts called risk analysts. Surprise, surprise. They work with forecasters in order to minimise the future negative unforeseen effects. In other words, the question becomes, what is the likelihood of a negative event occurring within a company, government, sector, industry, or even individuals? So let's use an example to understand what a risk analyst might do. Supposing you get up and want to drive to work, and you work as a builder. This simple act has risks involved. A risk analyst looks at this and asks, what could go wrong? This is from a death or health perspective. You could die before waking up. You could trip over and injure yourself whilst getting ready for work. You could have a car accident. Your car could break down and making you late for work and therefore loss of business or not show up at all. Something at work happening which could impair your ability to work, whether it's a back injury, etc. So there are literally hundreds of things that could go wrong in the simple act of getting up and going to work as a builder. At each step, a risk analyst may give you a probability weighting for that step to occur and once each step has a probability metric assigned to it, the risk analyst comes up with an overall risk profile or risk score. Then the analyst uses this to quantify the reasonable impact it will have where impact can be measured in different ways, whether it be health, finances, 
business failures, etc. Now, I've used the builder as an example for health risks, but you know it could affect his finances or her finances. There are two main types of risk analysts, um, risk analysis, which can be performed. And we're really getting into the geeky side of things, so bear with me. This this won't take very long. Um, the first type of risk analysis is called a quantitative risk analysis. This is when numerical values are assigned to risk, and then those values are fed into a simulation, which eventually spits out a range of outcomes. This is when an analyzed, um, you know, they use fancy graphs and tables and then fed back to management so you can make decisions to mitigate the deal with the risks. It's quite a complex process. That's called quantitative risk analysis. So one of the most famous quantitative risk analysis is the Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, it's a good example of a type of quantitative risk analysis and can be used in all fields, including finance. The second type of risk analysis is called a qualitative risk analysis. This type of analysis does not take into account any numerical ratings at all. It's all based on written definitions of uncertainties. An example of a qualitative risk analysis, and I'm sure you've heard of this, is called SWOT analysis. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And, of course, the other type of qualitative risk analysis is decision matrix. So hopefully this is all coming back to you. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of these two terms before. Um, so that is a qualitative risk analysis or an example of. Risk analysis is not perfect, though. It's an art and it's not a science. A real-life example of a risk analysis which has gone wrong is the global financial crisis of 2008. If you understate the potential risks, then the outcomes are also understated. So this is where things went wrong in the GFC. That is, people thought having subprime mortgages are not as risky as it was, so the risk analysis was way off, and this ended up being an unmitigated disaster for the global financial markets. So if you understate the risks in your risk analysis, you're going to understate the outcomes. So... Before I just finish up about risk, I just want to talk briefly about the concept of financial exposure. Now, a financial exposure is what an investor stands to lose in an investment. So let's use an example to understand this concept. Suppose you buy a car for $30,000. You insure the car for an agreed value of $25,000. Your financial exposure is the initial investment, which was thirty dollars minus the insured portion, which is 25k. So your financial exposure for that is 5,000. The more the financial exposure, the less the insurance premiums. We use this concept of financial exposure every day in our personal finance. And when I put it this way, I hope it makes a lot more sense. So we all have insurance. We all have car insurance, building insurance, uh, home and contents insurance. And they always ask you, how much do you want to insure it for? If you underinsure, then you're financially exposed. If you overinsure, then you limit or eradicate the risk of financial exposure. Basically, that's it. So, log into your insurance account and have a look at what your car is insured for. Have a look at what your building insurance is for. Have a look at what your home and contents insurance is for. It's an incredibly important concept that you need to understand. In the investing world, the aim is to limit the financial exposure. Let's use an investing example to understand the same concept. Suppose you buy $1,000 worth of shares in company X. Each share is worth a dollar. You bought 1,000 shares. Your initial investment is $1,000. If the share appreciated to $2 per share, 
your total portfolio would be now worth $2,000. If you sold 500 shares now at $2, you would have recouped your initial investment, eliminated your financial exposure, which leaves $1,000 worth of shares left over. That is, you have left over 500 shares. Therefore, what you've done is that you've eliminated your financial exposure. That is, you've taken money off the table and you've now kept the profits. Now, there is still risk going forward by owning company X shares, but that risk is now only applying to profits and not your initial capital outlay. Remember, you've already recouped your principal by selling off the selling off the shares when it reached $2 a share. Now, gamblers often use this principle called financial exposure, except a gamble is irrational and therefore gamblers lose their initial investment too most of the time. So, you know, when you think about gambling, you go to a casino, you put $5 and if you win $50, then you say, well, I've got my $5 back, so I've eliminated my financial exposure, so I'm going to put that away, then I'm going to gamble again with the 45 bucks that I've profited from. So that is kind of, you know, financial exposure that you've eliminated. But then what happens is the 45 bucks goes back into the gambling. uh, And of course, you lose all of it. So that's very irrational. But hopefully that explains financial exposure. So in this particular case, the share price increased to $2. Now let's, let's see what happens if the share price plummets to 50 cents per share. Then your portfolio went from $1,000 from owning 1,000 shares, to $500. So therefore, you've just lost $500 of your initial capital outlay. So that means you've been financially exposed. So how can you minimize your financial exposure? Invest in principal-protected investments, such as term deposits, cash deposits, or you can diversify or use the concept of hedging. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea. This brings me to the end of this episode. But before we finish up, I had a question recently about what are futures. Um, I've briefly covered the topic in uh, a previous podcast, episode 56, where I talk about financial derivatives. Um, But I'll use an example to explain it again and marry it to the concept of reducing your financial exposure, if that's okay. So what are futures? Well, you see it in the nightly news. You see ASX futures. You know, what are they? It's basically a hedging strategy. Futures are a form of derivative contracts which have expiry dates. So if you're a buyer, you promise to buy something at a future date. If you're a seller, you promise to sell something at a future date. And the underlying asset can be anything, commodities, bonds, stocks, currencies, whatever. When you think about it, if you have a fixed interest rate on your home loan, that is a form of hedge. What you're doing is you're hedging that the interest rates do not go up, And as a result, what you're trying to do is fix your home loan interest rates. And therefore, if you can do that, and if the interest rates don't, you know, don't go up, then you might have lost. But if the interest rate does go up, then you might have won. So I guess, how can you use futures to reduce your financial exposure? Exposure, sorry. Let's use an example. Suppose you're a taxi company which owns a thousand taxis in Melbourne. Taxis generally need fuel, which comes from oil, unless you drive a Tesla. Ha ha ha. So rather than each taxi fueling at petrol stations, suppose you entered into a futures contract with one of the big petrol petrol station companies, right? Suppose you wanted to buy petrol at a fixed price of a dollar for about 12 months at the end of 12 months. It provides protection for your business, so you can now 
know roughly how the cost of petrol happens for your taxi business. And because, you know, fuel is one of the biggest expenses for taxis, you've got a fixed cost pricing model. So it's a matter of how much your taxis run rather than including the price of petrol because the price of petrol normally is very fluctuant. So the petrol price in this case is fixed at a dollar per litre. If petrol prices rise in that 12 months, you still pay the same amount and your taxi fares don't need to be hiked. But your competition that didn't buy the futures contract, the competition taxi company, may not have had the futures contracts. As a result, they may go out of business if the petrol prices rise, which means great for you. You have more market share. If the petrol prices fall due to a global pandemic, as has happened in the first half of 2020, you've just done a stupid deal by fixing petrol prices as a dollar, and you may have to rise your taxi fares. Have a look at the petrol prices around. It's about 79 to 85 cents in Melbourne. So if another taxi company had not done a futures deal, they would have benefited because the fuel market has just slumped and then you would have just opened yourself up to the market competition because you fixed your price at a dollar. So thank you very much for Azza J for this question. So that's basically futures summed up in about a minute. And that's the end of this episode officially. Slightly longish one at 32 minutes so far. We've discussed a lot about risk. It encourages informed decision-making. It helps you look at risk-reward ratio. It can be objectively analysed using quantitative or qualitative analysis. It can be predict- unpredictable despite mitigation strategies. Risks can't be fully overcome and nothing is 100% risk-free. That's probably the take-home message. And risk can decimate entire economies, sectors, industries, and including your personal finances. So you must understand risk and you must give it the respect it deserves. That's about it for this episode. Now, remember to like the DevRaga Facebook personal fa- um, Facebook page. Um, shout out to questions and comments on there. And also contact me via Facebook. That seems to be the main medium in which people are reaching out to me. So thank you very much for that. And thank you also for topic suggestions. Uh, thank you, Azajay, again, for the question on futures. Now, if you're new to this channel, please share this channel with family and friends. It's free uh, via castbox.fm app. Spotify app, uh, Google Podcast, or even online, devraga.com. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside and keep investing Mm -hmm. and reinvest those dividends. And always pay attention to risk in your personal finance. This is Devraga Personal Finance Episode 75. And as always, make sure you stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.